Welcome to Vinyasa in Verse, the podcast where we connect mind, body, and spirit through poetry and practice. I'm Leslie Ann Hobayan. Together, we'll explore different ways of connecting with our innermost selves and how to tap into the flow of the universe. Because once that happens, anything is possible. Your best life starts now. Hey, loves. Welcome to another episode of Vinyasa in Verse. How are you on this beautiful day? I hope wherever you are that you can find a little beauty in the smallest moment, in a deep breath, in a noticing of a flower or the way the sun might come into your window or even just in a breath. Take a moment to express gratitude for life and for the breath that continues to nourish us. And so here we begin our second part of the three-part series on finding joy in healing. And so to begin our episode, I will flip through our book of poems by the Sufi mystic poet who is now our oracle. And this poem is called It Is Unanimous. It is unanimous where I come from. Everyone agrees on one thing. It's no fun when God is not near. All are hunters. The wise man learns the friend's weaknesses and sets a clever trap. Listen, the beloved has agreed to play a game called love. Our sun sat in the sky way before this earth was born, waiting to caress a billion faces. Hafez encourages all art, for at its height it brings light near to us. The wise man learns what draws God near. It is the beauty of compassion in your heart. Hmm... I love that. I love all the poems that I find in this book. Um, but I'm particularly struck by that, that last image, those last two lines. It is the beauty of compassion in your heart. I feel that a lot of us hear this word compassion these days um, and how we don't see a lot of that in our political arenas. Um, But beauty of compassion is something that we possess naturally. It's just that we've covered it up with a bunch of things that our ego wants. We've looked away from it because we've been distracted by illusions of grandeur, perhaps. But this poem is an invitation to come back to the heart, to be still and to listen and to remember that in our heart we have compassion we also have empathy and can we express these things when we interact with our fellow humans humans who may or may not share our same beliefs whether it's spiritual beliefs political beliefs 
food choices. You know, I always love food. I have to throw that in there. But can we extend compassion to our fellow human beings? Because we all feel pain. We all feel grief. We all suffer on various levels. We all experience this world in similar ways. And so remembering that, remembering that when a loved one passes away, we all feel that grief. We also know what joy looks like. And in this commonality, can we express compassion for our fellow human beings? And at the time of this recording, uh, it is not election time. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. It's coming close. Uh, but by the time this gets published, it'll be after uh, election. And I'm going to suspect that the results will not be immediate. So, um, so we'll see. So I'm just asking that all of us who are listening to show ourselves compassion as well as others. It will help us get through whatever lies ahead. It will help us keep us strong um, and focus on what matters. Love. Always love. And this is the game that Hafez mentions in the poem, right? The beloved has agreed to play a game called love. And so let's play that game. Let's engage in it. Because that is what's going to help us thrive in our lives. We don't want to just survive. We want to work past that point. We want to work beyond that familiar level of tolerance. We want to thrive in our lives. And so in thinking about uh, this series on finding joy and healing, uh, this second part I titled uh, based on, on a myth that healing is all about crying. In the previous uh, part one, previous episode, I said that healing is too hard. That's a myth. Okay, so the myth for today's episode is that healing is all about crying. Like, if you're not crying, you're not doing it right. If you're not bawling your eyes out, you're not broken, you're not, you know, come apart at the seams, then you're not doing right, doing it right. And that's not true. Um, healing looks different for everybody. Trauma looks different for everybody. And so we need to honor this very particularity that each of us has. We are specific individuals who have specific, unique experiences. The same thing can happen to two people, and those people will experience it in different ways. Let's take a car accident, for example. You know, um, it could be two people. Oh, actually, there is an example in uh, this book that I love called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And I've mentioned his book before. Um, it's really amazing. For those of you that are looking to explore um, how body is, how body, how trauma is embodied in us, uh, that is the book to turn to um, 
it's there's so many great connections that he makes there and so he gives this example of um, a couple that gets into a, a serious car accident it's a something crazy like a 32 car pileup or something like they it was in Canada and they were driving and this fog just dropped out of nowhere like literally dropped where there was zero visibility and 32 cars piled up on each other and um, they were trapped in their car and they witnessed um, a little girl in the car in front of them uh, ha- who whose car was on fire and she ended up dying in that fire and so both people witnessed uh, this event. They had two very different experiences. The husband, um, he went into fight mode where he tried to get out of the car. He wrestled as much as he could. His body just, you know, thrashed about. And Vessel van der Kolk does a, a much better job of describing the events. He's a fantastic storyteller. So I highly recommend that you check it out. But, um, but I'm going to summarize it. So the, the husband, he, um, he tries to, to save the girl. He physically tries to get out. He can't. They're trapped. There's, there's no way. The wife is witnessing it and she goes into freeze mode. She cannot move. She can't even make a sound. She is paralyzed. And so same event, two different people, two different experiences. And Van der Kolk uh, continues to talk about their case and um, the different things that triggered their traumas and how they dealt with it. Um, it's really fascinating stuff and how all this stuff is related to their childhoods and how they grew up. So how we respond to trauma is very much rooted in our foundational formation so from the age that, from when you're born to about age seven is like the foundation that determines how you respond to a lot of things that, that happen in your life. Um, and if you're not aware of that, then these responses end up being automatic. So one of the, one of the healing approaches that I encourage folks is to create awareness around patterns, around behaviors, uh, specifically behaviors that feel triggering to, um, to trauma. Um, and when you create awareness, then you can see the root of the problem. You can see the root of the behaviors and the patterns and try to figure out how to pull out the root like you would a, a weed that might be choking your flowers in the flower bed. Um, and then figure out how to repattern so that you can thrive. And so um, getting back to the topic of healing is all about crying. Well, for some it might be, right? Crying is a release. And growing up in an Asian family, crying is really not encouraged. Now, there's never an actual declaration saying, you know, like in A League of Their Own, there's no crying in Asian families. For those of you that don't know that movie, that baseball movie, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, but there's a line that's famous where um, they say there's no crying in baseball. And uh, because it's a, an all-women's baseball team and, uh, and the women cry and, and their male coach is like, no, there's no crying in baseball. Um, so in my family, 
there's no crying in Asian families. <laughs> um, and so this is understood. And what happens when the urge to cry gets suppressed? Because crying is a release. It's a natural release of bad energy, bad feelings, toxins, pent up energy, like just all the things, you know, our body releases things in different ways. And crying is one of them. Uh, sometimes it's sweat, you know, sometimes it's this urge to run, which is the, the flight response. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things. But when one of those gets suppressed, where does that energy go? You know, so there's no crying. And if there's an urge to cry, what happens with that energy? I don't know. I mean, I do know. It just gets stuffed down and, and we all know. I mean, sometimes I say, I don't know as a throwaway sentence. And I'll admit to that. I'm doing my best to break that habit because I want to be a person of my word. I want to be a person who says what I mean and means what I say. So when I say I don't know, it it needs to mean that I actually don't know. So I'm working on on trying to revise that, to break that pattern, to break that habit and replace it with a new one. Um, and so I invite you also to think about what your throwaway phrases are, you know, what your filler phrases are, and see if they actually mean what you are saying they are. Um, so yeah, repressing crying. What happens with that energy to grieve, to express sadness, to express frustration, is that it gets pent up in the body. It gets shoved down somewhere. For me, it's down in the hip area and it's left to fester. And so when you think about um, like a pressure cooker, right? Instant pots are popular these days. If you keep the steam that's built up in the pressure cooker, you leave it there pressure is going to build. The heat alone, even if it's turned off, the residual heat will, will keep building that pressure. And, you know, on the technical front, the instant pot is designed to release the pressure naturally. But let's just say it's not. So what happens when that pressure builds and builds and builds? It ends up exploding, right? And so what does that explosion look like? It looks like rage. It looks like violence. It looks like overindulgence in things that numb us, in things that might be considered dangerous because it's the only thing that makes us feel alive. And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of um, behaviors like cutting or... Um, eating disorders where we feel that we need to get a sense of control because we haven't been allowed to express and release. So healing can look like crying, can look like that release. Can it look like other things? This is a question I've been considering for some time can healing look like joy? 
maybe. So let's think about this. Let's take the example of the trauma of racism. Okay. There are instances where I will experience racism and it will not be safe for me to respond to it, to retaliate, to call people out on it, to do anything. The safest thing is for me to freeze or to fawn. You know, we're, we're talking about the um, sympathetic nervous system responses that are designed to keep us safe, that are designed for our survival. And just to recap real quick, the four responses are fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. Now, some folks might be like, fawn, when did that come into play? I know all the other ones, but really, what's that? Fawn is the people pleaser. Fawn is the behavior that we take on where we want to please the other person who we perceive as a threat so as not to further agitate them. Um, which is, uh, you know, I think my default F response in any situation. <laughs> but um, so racist incident happens, right? Uh, I can share one that, that comes to mind. Um, I mean, there's so many, right? But I want to share a personal one that has stayed with me for ever, it feels like. But it's, it's sting has lessened significantly because I've done the healing work. I can talk about it without being triggered. Um, I can talk about it without feeling ill will towards the other person. I can talk about it in a very neutral way. And so... The story goes, I was in uh, my boyfriend's apartment at the time. This was uh, just fresh out of college. And his roommate was an ex-Marine. He had uh, done active duty in Okinawa. And... I don't even know what prompted him to say this, but he, I mean, prior to this moment, he would talk about how, about his time in Okinawa and, and how, um, he learned a little Tagalog from the Filipinas that were there. Um, and from his stories, I inferred that the Filipinas who were there were um, prostitutes. But I don't know that for sure. I mean, they could have just been comfort women, as the saying goes, who are actually there against their will um, and designed to provide, quote unquote, comfort to the men in the military. It wasn't clear to me. All I know is that he uh, talked about how he knew some Tagalog and um, the Filipinas were very beautiful, which is language that I hear all the time from white men, but especially military men. And so one day we're in their apartment and 
out of nowhere, uh, he's standing up and I am, I'm standing facing him. We're, you know, sort of in a group conversation and somehow I find myself sort of face to face with him. You know, it's like one-on-one, mano y mano. And he's tall. I'm like five, two, and he is probably six, one, six, two. And he says to me, you know, when I was in Okinawa, I could get girls like you for a dollar. And I was like, what? You know, and I didn't know how to respond. I just remember my entire body flaming up with heat. I could feel my fists start to tighten and I was stuck between all the responses. I wanted to fight him. I really wanted to, you know, punch him in the face right then and there. I froze because I was stunned and didn't even know what to say. I wanted to flee because this man felt dangerous. Like he was going to take me right then and there. As for the fawning, that's actually what happened. Kind of. What happened after that split second of experiencing all four F's was that I just looked at him and kind of nervously laughed it off. Like, ha ha ha. And... I think I walked away, but I think I also stood there a little longer, allowing my anger to seethe and, and be directed at him while also being intimidated by him. So multiple things are happening at once. Um, and I just couldn't believe my ears. I mean, I could, and I couldn't, you know, this doesn't surprise me. This kind of language, this kind of talk, this kind of swagger doesn't surprise me. I mean... This is how I know white men talk about Filipinas. And so I, I wasn't surprised, but I was still shocked that it was said out loud, that it was directed towards me. And he said it in a way that felt like he was ready to quote unquote, buy me. And I was just so disgusted, but also scared for my safety. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was, it was a crazy moment. And eventually I walked away, kind of left it off and like, didn't want to rock the boat and make a big scene. So I just, uh, kind of let it appear that it rolled off my back. And so, um, and so to this day, I, you know, I think about that a lot and I'm like, man, that is some crazy conditioning, Right to uh, see me as property rather than as an individual, which is something that black folks experience since the day they're born, you know? And this is, this is the thing that we're talking about. This is the thing that we're trying to undo, what we're trying to dismantle when we say we want to dismantle systemic racism. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's traumatic to experience that moment when one human being does not see you as human, does not consider you as human. 
And this is what black folks go through every day. So what I did to deal with that over the years, because this is, you know, we're, we're looking at probably like 20 years now, right? Maybe more. If we do the math, I don't want to do the math. <laughs> um, but over this time, I've done various things to try to heal that trauma. Initially, I didn't think it was a trauma. I didn't consider it traumatic, even though my body was shook. Even though when I mentioned it to a friend and they were like, what? In that mentioning, I felt shook again. So, I mean, that should have been a sign right away. You know, hello, traumatic experience. But, you know, I only knew what I knew and I thought this was normal. Like this was a normal response to when people treat you like garbage, your body goes into these shakes and like this tension and, you know, whatever. Um, it, was, it wasn't until later when I learned more about trauma and traumatic responses and how it shows up in our bodies that I realized the magnitude of that experience. Um, so I did, you know, what I thought was quote unquote healing. Um, you only know what you know, right? So I um, tried writing about it, thought that writing the experience, writing through it, you know, and leaving it out on the page would do the healing. That would be the, that would be the trick. But um, didn't quite work. I want to say I don't want to say it was a total failure. It did do something. It it did allow me to release just a little bit. And what I find, generally speaking, with um, with anything of this weight, is that when you write it, you are able to let go a little bit of its heaviness at a time, little by little, bit by bit. Um, but in the process, for me, at the beginning of this practice of writing to let go and to heal, in this process, I found that I was re-traumatizing myself because I was experiencing those same physical sensations I did um, as when it first happened. So I was like, I don't know how much I could take of this. You know, I tell people about it and they're like, oh my God, you have to write this. And I said, I know, and I am writing it kind of, but because it was so intense, when I first wrote the story of it, that experience was really intense. And because of that, I started writing obliquely. I started writing at, at it from an angle where I would write in these vague metaphors. I'd write allegories. I'd write, you know, myths, whatever. Just something that wasn't the actual thing. And that didn't really feel very healing or helpful. It was just me rehashing it in ways that um, just felt like rehashing, you know. Uh, but I was, what I was doing was, and I didn't realize it at the time, what I was doing was I was trying to keep my nervous system safe. And so throughout this whole time, there was no crying. And I find that really interesting because in my head, I had this idea that when you are healing, there is crying. And I thought I was doing it wrong. But I will say, you know, in all the healing work that I've done, not just with regard to this particular incident, but just all my traumas in general, that when it comes to a direct 
address of the trauma. I don't cry, but it shows up in other ways. Like I'll cry at a, you know, long distance telephone, you know, those old AT&T commercials. Like I'll cry at those. I'll cry at cheesy, you know, Hallmark movies. Um, so the release comes out and, and it comes out eventually just in different ways. But, uh, but when I'm doing like direct healing work, what I am noticing is that my body has other ways of releasing. You know, I first, uh, experienced that with yoga, um, moving the body helps to move blocked energy all that energy that gets tamped down gets to shift and then find ways to get out of the body which is why yoga is so amazing and it's not a workout you know there's something else happening at the subtle level and i continued that that relationship with yogic movement when i started practicing kundalini yoga which is a whole nother level. There's all sorts of things happening there. You've got body movement, you've got mantra, which is so healing because the vibrational frequency of the mantra aligns with your own vibrational frequency. And there is so much magic in that. And then on top of that is breath work, breath patterns, breath pranayam. And so when you're adding more oxygen into your body while moving it, while tuning into a frequency that feels sacred and aligned, so much healing happens. It's really quite, quite astounding. Um, but, you know, crying doesn't happen there. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. Now, I'm not saying that there's no crying. But what I'm saying is that healing doesn't always require or look like a bunch of tears where you're hysterically sobbing into an empty tissue box. It can. It can look like that. But it doesn't have to be. And so I'm, I'm bringing this up because I don't want folks to think that they're doing it wrong if they're not crying. You know, there are some, there are some people who say, well, if you're not crying, then you're still holding it in. You're not ready to let it go. You're like clinging on to expectations or you're too rigid or, you know, whatever it is. But I say that the crying will come out whenever it needs to in whatever ways it needs to. Um, and if it doesn't need to, then it doesn't need to. You know, maybe it's coming out in sweat. Maybe the release is like, you know, clammy hands and wet armpits. It looks different for everybody. And so I just wanted to offer this uh, second part of the series as a myth buster to this idea that crying is necessary for healing, which is not. What's necessary for healing is your commitment to your well-being, your commitment to compassion and love for yourself. And to be able to hold yourself with such care and kindness that the seemingly broken parts of you can heal. I say seemingly because it's important for us to think about trauma as 
a part of us rather than a broken part of us. It's a new part of us. Yes, you know, during the trauma, we may have been broken. I mean, on the literal level, physiological level, our brain patterns, our neuro um, pathways were broken. Um, But then the body begins to repair itself and incorporates that break as part of its new landscape, as part of its new identity. And so thinking about trauma as part of who you are now is a huge step to healing, huge. Because you're learning how to accept yourself for who you are. And that, my friends, is the secret to healing. At least I think so. Anyway, so that is what I will leave with you for this episode today. And I want to close the episode with this poem by uh, Jericho Brown from his book, The Tradition, which is so amazing. Y'all have to go get it. This poem is called The Trees. In my front yard live three crepe myrtles, crying trees, we once called them. Not the shadiest, but soothing during a break from work in the heat, their cool sweat falling into us. I don't want to make more of it. I'd like to let these spindly things be since my gift for transformation here proves useless now that I know everyone moves the same whether moving in tears or moving to punch my face. A crepe myrtle is a crepe myrtle. Three is a family. It is winter, they are bare. It's not that I love them every day. It's that I love them anyway. Hmm. And on that note, I wish you blessings. I wish you healing energy. I wish you love. The divine light in me bows to the divine light in you. Until next time, namaste. Healing is so necessary for women writers of color. Whether we know it or not, our traumas hold us back from expressing and becoming our truest selves. How can we be more present to this? How can we create new ways of understanding our hurts so that we can heal them and step into our life's purpose with radiance? Follow me on Instagram for messages of healing and support as you walk this journey that brings you home to yourself. Find me at this handle, at Yogi, S-U-R-Y-A-G-I-A-N-Y-O-G-I. Or visit my website to learn more at suryagyan.com. Your best healed life starts now.